Thank you very much. We'll listen to you sing all day, even if we don't know what you're saying. And you told us ahead of time, so I was just filling in a bunch of Jesus' love and my unworthiness, and it seemed to go really well. So thank you very much. Appreciate that. Take your Bibles this evening as the little lights are dismissed and turn to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13. In the evening time, we are going through really not the book of Isaiah uh, verse by verse or line by line, but uh, as, as a theological overview. And so it's a little different in these evening services, and we will try to make as much headway as we can and then hand it off to the next evening. Tonight, uh, I know we have a few new parents in here and a few... Uh, probably watching, and I think many of you could kind of relate to this a little bit, but imagine it's the couple's first night home with their first baby, and in walk, walks uh, the wife, and she sees her husband just staring down at the crib, at the, their infant child their firstborn, and she can readily see the mix of emotions on her face, emotions of disbelief, doubt, delight, amazement, maybe some skepticism, enchantment, and she was touched by this unusual display, the depth of the emotion on her husband's face, and probably for most husbands, there's not a very often uh, a time to get so emotional and to be so incredibly visual with your emotions. Well, this was an instance that his, that his wife really had not seen before in him. And so she had her eyes glistening on him. She put her arm around his and really just started to suck in the moment. He looked over at her and he said... It's amazing. I just can't see how anybody can make a crib like that for only $65. I didn't want to start the evening off too somber. Okay, I tend to get there real fast. But in we can celebrate the difference maybe perhaps between guys and gals, and certainly between those who can see the big picture and those who get really caught up in some of the minutia and some of the details. Well, theologically speaking, Isaiah does an incredible service to us. Because oftentimes people will point their finger at God and they'll grow very critical of how he acts, how he behaves, what he says, what he does. Many people will look at God, even as we heard this morning, and they will they will raise their fist at him and say, how can that God be good? They will look at the circumstances of their life or, or the life of others, and they'll say, what in the world, God, are you doing? Doubt, critique, complain. They don't understand the God of heaven. They ask questions like, how in the world can, jo can God judge and be a good God? How can he choose people? What is this whole 
elect thing. How loving is that? How can there be a hell if God is so good? So a lot of questions come to mind as people tend to get into the minutia and forget the big picture of who God is. One of the major emphases of Isaiah is really Isaiah's namesake. And that is that Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. Tonight, in the time we have, we're going to try to look at the premise or the basis for God's salvation as displayed in Isaiah, the prerequisites of that salvation, the person of that salvation in the product. So P's, so we can easily remember the premise, the prerequisites, the person, and the products. What does salvation look like? And so let's dive right into Isaiah chapter 13 and look at the premise of salvation, or the foundation, the, the first principle, if you will. And that is that salvation is based on God's nature. And there couldn't be a, a more clear contrast in the book of Isaiah between who God is and who man is. It is God's nature versus man's nature. And right away, the contrast displays for us in, in vivid detail that man doesn't deserve the salvation. That man ultimately earns everything but salvation. Man earns judgment. But this contrast screams out that man is in desperate need of salvation. Completely helpless and hopeless without salvation. And so Isaiah, remember, he writes, and he writes to people who are God's, his children. And yet they turn away from his salvation time and time again. And so God's nature fundamentally describes or displays for us our need for salvation because we are nothing like God. And We'll talk about this in a little bit, but this really goes back to the first theological outlook that we had, that God is holy. He is completely unlike us. He is not common. And so we are in need of something that he has that we do not have. So we are in need of saving because we are sinners. Look at verse 9 with me. And if you'll remember, a few Sundays ago, we, we saw in chapter 1 some of the the words that Isaiah uses of sin. And we see some of those same words re reoccurring here in chapter 13 and verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. We're, we don't have time to really get into the, the full concept of the day of the Lord, but it's certainly an eschatological time to come, certainly from Isaiah's standpoint and from ours as well. And, and context ultimately determines the very specifics of the day of the Lord. But it is nonetheless a time that will come. And oftentimes it is a time wrapped up in judgment. But again, context ultimately determines that. But Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9, Behold, behold the day of the Lord is coming. And so right away we know that Isaiah has in full view judgment because it's cruel, it's with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. See the violence of these words. And he will exterminate its sinners. And here's one of the words that we saw in Isaiah chapter 1. And this is 
the word sinner that we often think of in the New Testament. That is, one who is aiming at something and completely misses the mark, incapable of setting and achieving the goal set before him. And so, sinners are in view. Sinners. Look at verse 11 with me. We see another term that we saw in chapter 1. World of evil. Wicked for iniquity. Pomp of the arrogant. Look at chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 13. Verse, chapter 13, verse 11. My goodness. Thus I will punish the world for its evil. That word evil uh, really has depravity in, in, in mind. Wickedness. Pure undulterated evil and the wicked for their iniquity that word iniquity is is the word that we saw in chapter one that is is twisted and it is bent there's nothing straight about it. it is it is deformed i will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud the pride the rebellion we saw that isaiah really presents sin as rebellion against God and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. And so the premise of salvation, the, the contrast between God's nature and man's nature is pretty plain in Isaiah. And we could go chapter to chapter to chapter and see that Isaiah really presents a man, a mankind, a humanity, every single one, his children, not his children, his nation, not his nation, that is utterly wicked, evil, rebellious, missing the mark, and deserving, full, fully earning judgment. Fully earning judgment. And so we see that judgment is, is necessary. We could look in chapter 4, in chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 4 and verse 5 in chapter 13 and, and see that God is really uh, mustering up his hosts and that he is, he is going to lay waste, he's going to destroy the land. And that, is, that, that may seem harsh if someone just happens upon it and doesn't really know a whole lot about God and a whole lot about how God views them. But my friends, that's the problem when, when we take God and we try to put him into a little box and start, to, and start to poke at some of the things that he says without really stepping back and seeing the full picture of who God is and really how Isaiah presents this wonderful, gracious, saving God of heaven, the Holy One of Israel. In verse 6, we see that uh, he, is, he is going to destroy, he himself will destroy. Destruction comes from the Almighty. Verse 9, we saw, we already read that he will exterminate you know, it's kind of like Terminex coming into your house. And, and I lived in South Carolina for a time, and, and it was humid in South Carolina. That was something to complain about. But you know what else was worthy of complaining about? The size of their bugs. Okay? And so you didn't mess around. You called Terminex. In fact, in South Carolina, you had to have what's called, to buy a house, you had to have a termite bond. So they had to treat the soil around it. Bugs were so bad. Well, here, my friends... Uh, God is the holy, I hate this, Terminax. He's, he's the terminator. of, of and, 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 and the problem, the infestation, is sin-sick, wicked, rebellious, evil people. 
Isaiah makes no bones about it. That it is because of who God is and conversely because of who we are that we deserve to be terminated. And it's not really until you come to terms with that that you see just how amazing the offer of salvation is. And so we can't certainly leave that out of our gospel message, and we can't leave that out of, of, of our discussions with our children and, 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 and even with those who don't understand and don't know the Lord. If they don't fully come to know who God is, they're never going to do it having some sort of mirage of who they are. Now, we don't necessarily start there, and we don't certainly end there. But my friends... Make no apology for how Isaiah and for how really all of the Bible presents mankind. He helpfully gives us two pictures here quickly in chapter 13. Look at verse 12. The first picture is that God is really going to exterminate sinners from, from the world. And it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be so that, that man is going to be scarcer than pure gold. It will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold, and mankind the gold of Ophir. You know, Job speaks of that. The psalmists speak of the gold of Ophir. Solomon does as well. And we don't know really, I don't think, as far as my understanding, we don't really know where Ophir is. We don't really understand all behind it, but, but we get the sense from the Old Testament usage that it is, it is a precious and rare commodity. Even more precious than just regular gold. And so, so Isaiah's point is, um, mankind is really going to be judged, and, and, and mankind really is going to be scarce. It's, it's, not a, it's not a party. Afterlife in hell is, is, not a, is not a time to just shrug off. Verse 13 and 14. Therefore I will make the heavens, here's the second picture, picture of a, hunt, a hunted animal and helpless sheep. I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts. And that's the Lord of armies. That's the, the Lord who is ready to do battle. The Lord who is almighty. The Lord who is sovereign. The, the Lord who is the creator and sustainer and controller in the day of his burning anger. And it will be like a hunted gazelle or like a sheep with none to gather them. And they will each turn to his own people, and each one flee to his own land. And so he'll, he'll use nations, and, and we, we can unravel that in the book of Isaiah and even in other prophecy, and, and see that God is not uh, shy to use other nations to, 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 to punish other nations, including Israel. So God, uh, God's nature is contrasted really with man's nature. God is holy. He is just. He is perfect. But we must be quick to say that when we see judgment terms like this, and we see the, the dramatic nature of these judgment terms, like extermination, like the whole earth, I mean, these are, these are pretty graphic concepts, aren't they? If you really think about it, this is stuff that will come true, my friends. We understand that that's not the end of the story. But in the meantime, it's pretty graphic. 
And sometimes you kind of scratch your head and say, God, you are gracious to your, especially as we page through the Old Testament, right? You're gracious to your people, and then you judge them. But they should have been judged when you were gracious to them. Right? And then you're gracious to them again. God, what are you doing? And sometimes he tells us. He's trying to display his glory to, to maybe nations like Egypt out of the Exodus. Right? And so sometimes he gives us these big picture ideas of, of how God is bringing himself glory through. But make no mistake about it. God's judgment is never vindictive. God's judgment is never uh, 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 impulsive or capricious. It is always, my friend, earned. God's judgment is always earned, and it is always, always just. And so in verse 5, when he says he's going to destroy the whole land, while that may seem like, wow, that seems like an awful thing to do, it is what, my friends, is earned. It is what is earned. And, and it is really on the basis of who God is, as we learned few weeks ago on his holiness that he cannot stand even the presence of sin and he is completely unlike us he is not common and so god is holy and and god's nature stands in direct contrast with man's nature but god's faithfulness is also another aspect another premise of salvation, God's faithfulness. Not just the contrast between man's wickedness and God, but God's faithfulness. And God is faithful in cleansing. Just because of time, I'm going to probably give you one instance of this and maybe a few references, okay? And, and know that uh, this, is, this is not just one verse out of Isaiah that I picked, but, but as we're going through these themes, there, there really is chapter after chapter and really a, a, a line throughout that, uh, that many men have touched on and, and certainly in, in my reading have, have seen that Isaiah brings about um, one, of the, one of the main premises for his salvation is, is, is faithfulness. That God is faithful. He says things uh, like in chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, right? They shall be white as wool. Though they're red like crimson, they shall... Excuse me, they'll be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be as wool. This is something that God says will happen. If you do salvation His way, God says, this is what you were, and this is what you are. Isaiah chapter 43 is another great instance. He says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. It's not based on anybody. It's not based on anything other than God and God's purposes. And so if his salvation is based on his purposes, he says this, and I will not remember your sins. You can write it down. You can mark it down. When God says something, it is true. Amen. And it will happen. And Isaiah, time and time again, looks to God's faithfulness as an encouraging word in the terms of God's salvation that he offers. In other words, we can stand here and we can look in the mirror and we can have a pity party all day long, but it's not based on you and it's not based on what you see in the mirror. 
It's based, your salvation is based solely on the love, mercy, and then it flows through the faithfulness of God. And it does not change. Isaiah really leans on covenantal language for this and the covenantal promise. Obviously, he's writing to Israel and he says, I am your God. I am with you. Chapter 41, I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. You know, when he says these things, these go all the way back to Deuteronomy. These go all the way back to Exodus and the Exodus. And the promise even before that, that God gives to Abraham. And even before that. And so uh, Isaiah really leans on the covenantal promise, the faithful work, the faithful word of God. God also leans on the faithfulness uh, excuse me, Isaiah leans on the faithfulness of, of God that he is, and, and we heard it this morning, that he is eternal. He is eternal. He contains all of eternity. You can cross-reference there Isaiah chapter 33 and verses 20 through 22, and Isaiah chapter 49, verses 14 through 18. Let me just read Isaiah chapter 33, verse 20 and and 22. If you want to turn there, that'd be fine. Isaiah says, Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem. So this is in the, the midst of, of judgment coming out of the previous chapters, an undisturbed habitation. And Isaiah says this, he says, A tent which will not be folded. And so think about, you know, the tabernacle. Right? And certainly leaning to a picture there, but, but how that tabernacle was packed up and moved around in the wilderness all over the place. And that was the way that they approached God. That was their visible means of worship. And, 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 and Isaiah says, A tent which will not be folded, its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its cords be torn apart. But there, the majestic one, the Lord will be for us, a place of rivers and wide canals on which no boat with oars will go. And so he changes metaphors a little bit, on which no mighty ship will pass. In other words, there's no threat. It is God and God alone who controls, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Isaiah rests in the faithfulness of God, and the faithfulness of God is all because of God's eternality, that he is eternal, that he exists forever. And so for all of eternity, we know his salvation. God's faithfulness is able to break the chains of sin as well. And you can write down there Isaiah chapter 43, 42, if you want to go and look at that later. But he says, essentially, in Isaiah chapter 43, he says, I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I am God, even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver you out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? God acts, and he breaks the chains of sin, as it were. He breaks the bondage. That was verse 11, if you're taking notes. And so God and his faithfulness can break and will break and is faithful to conquer sin. And it is the premise, it is the basis, it is the, 
the foundation of salvation that God is holy and that he is faithful. It is the very nature of God that gives us salvation. And fundamentally, then, we have to, we have to kind of hang our hat on the, on the reality that there is no human activity whatsoever <laughs> that could do anything to even approach the solution that God has for salvation. And so it is completely and utterly a worthless endeavor for mankind to try to redeem himself. They can't even change their behavior without him, really. And so the condition, uh, so the premise of salvation is, is who God is, the very nature of God. The condition for salvation is through faith alone. Through faith alone. And so Isaiah gives us time and time again some positive statements of saving faith. Isaiah chapter 12, trust in me. Isaiah chapter 26, you will have perfect peace if you trust in the Lord. Isaiah chapter 50, if you obey and trust. Those are key words, my friends, for having faith, by the way, in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 45, turn to me, trust in me. God offers salvation through faith. That's the same in the Old Testament as in the New. Is in the New. Certainly, he gives negative realities of that. All those times that you trusted in another nation, particularly in Isaiah here, those who trusted in Egypt for their help in Isaiah chapter 31. <laughs> They're not strong, basically, Isaiah says, like the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And remember, there's our term that really is, is specific to Isaiah. That, that God is transcendent and yet he is with us and that he is worthy of trusting in and he's right there to guide you. If only you will seek the Lord, Isaiah chapter 31 says. Chapter 36 talks about Egypt and their chariots and what are they to God? What are they to God? And yet, and yet it was a real struggle for even God's own nation to trust in God and not in a strong nation directly south of them. And so Isaiah presents uh, these statements of faith, whether positive or negative. And he certainly presents faith, absolute faith, in the suffering servant in chapter 53. We don't have time to really get into that. We'll probably get into that into our discussion tonight. But if there's, if there's nothing that speaks of faith more in Isaiah, it is the, the, the vicarious atonement or the substitution death of Jesus Christ for your sins and for my sins. And Isaiah chapter 53 really points to the reality that, 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 that God's suffering servant ultimately bore the wrath of our sin. He bore the punishment. And so what in the world can you do other than to place your faith into that suffering servant? What in the world can you do? You can't do anything else. He bore it for you. And so how 
we won't pick on our Jewish friends, but, but how, well, we will. We always say we won't, but we do it anyway. How in the world can you miss that? How can you, how can you go through all of these things and not see that there is one who has borne it already? And no one can do what he can do. And then Paul, in Romans chapter 3, picks up on that. What a beautiful thing. Isaiah speaks to its coming. Paul speaks to this bearing of God's wrath already have happened. The only means of salvation is through God's redeeming activity, through His Son. Here it is, the person of salvation. The person of salvation. Humanity must trust in Christ and Christ alone. In a brief summary, um, there are really six um, either metaphors or, or references to and, and potentially more, but six that really run throughout that, that really speak of or look forward to Jesus Christ. And so we'll discuss this tonight in our, in our discussion time. But the first one is, uh, certainly happens in Isaiah chapter 7, but Isaiah chapter 9 describes this wonderful child, this Emmanuel, this Christ is with us. And he calls him the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father and the prince of peace. That Christ is with us. He is the child, Isaiah presents him. Going all the way back, really, to the promised seed in Genesis chapter 3. He is the king. The one who will reign forever. Christ will reign forever. He's not just a child, but he is the child king. And each generation in the Old Testament looked for the next deliverer on the throne. And they looked in vain, my friends. Because Ahaz was certainly a failure. And even if you try to go to the, to, in, a, in the book of Isaiah, maybe a, a decent king, Hezekiah, he was certainly a joke when it came to certain things. David was a failure. And so he is the king that will reign forever. And Isaiah chapter 6 picks up on that, that he's sitting on his throne. And there's a whole bunch of other references. Chapter 49, chapter 16, chapter 13. We could go through all those. But we don't have time. But if you read through it, just pick up on the king. The king. He is the king that is also pictured as the branch. The branch coming from the stump of Jesse. Again, really relating back to that royal reality that Christ is coming. But this branch gives us hope that that life is not put out at the deepest, darkest moments of history, whether it's God's children's history in the Old Testament with Isaiah, with Israel, or whether it's in our own life, in our own ecclesiastical history, our own personal faith history. There is always a hope because Christ is the branch that lives on, that never dies. And yet, he comes from the root, the promise. So, the child, Christ is God with us. The king, Christ will reign forever. The branch, Christ gives us hope. The servant, we talked about him a little bit. Christ died in our place. That's the servant. Now, listen, every time you read through Isaiah, and, and Isaiah talks about the servant, it doesn't necessarily mean 
Isaiah chapter 52, chapter 53, and a few other places where, where Christ is the servant. In fact, Cyrus is called a servant. Okay? Israel is a servant oftentimes doing God's bidding, whether they want to or not, in the book of Isaiah. So context really determines who the servant is. But certainly one of the main names or titles or, or pictures of, of the Messiah to come, Christ, is the servant, that he died in our place, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. The stone, another picture. So child, Christ is with us. King, Christ will reign forever. Servant, Christ died in our place. Branch, Christ gives us hope. And stone, Christ gives us surety. And I was struggling with the word. Okay, guarantee, sure, warranty, yeah, but, but, but the surety really, and here's what I mean by this, because Isaiah really depicts a, two, a two-sided stone, if you will, of, of this stone, the Messiah. In one sense, and Peter picks up on it in 1 Peter chapter 2, Christ is the stone of stumbling, and he is to his people, isn't he? But Isaiah gives a beautiful, a beautiful uh, uh, a picture of a stone of Christ. He, he uses the stone of stumbling, but he turns it upside down, and he says, once someone believes in Jesus Christ, he doesn't use that term, but once he believes in the Messiah, once he has faith, he has a, he has a faith that is like a stone. It is unmovable. It is sure. And so Christ will do one of two things, won't he? And we know that, don't we? Christ will either cause people to reject God altogether or Christ will give you the faith that you need to withstand the storms of time and so the other usage of stone is in Isaiah chapter 28 verses 16 to 17 one of the other uh, the former uses the stone of stumbling is in, in the chapter 8 the other was chapter 28 and lastly Christ Messiah is light and God is light God is God is a picture of light and certainly associated with light. And each one of those have New Testament themes, by the way. Each one of those the New Testament writers pick on, up on, whether it's Jesus Christ himself or it is, uh, it is uh, another author. And finally, the results of salvation or the product of salvation. And we're done. I'm going to make it real brief. But my friends, when you and I understand the premise, that is who God is, when we, when we walk through the prerequisites, and that's, that's faith in Jesus Christ. When we, when we see the person, Jesus Christ, of salvation, there's always a product. There's always a product. Jesus gives us example after example, parable after parable of this in the New Testament. He's the vine, after all. The fruit of the Spirit. But the product of salvation really ends where I think Isaiah begins. And that is, God is holy. He's not common. He's altogether distinct. Magnificent. And free of sin. And so I don't certainly intend to say that when we're saved, we are perfect. By any stretch of the imagination. But we begin on that day to start to look more and more like Jesus Christ every day after that. Not every day the same. 
not every day perfect. But as, again, we step back and we look at the big picture of our life, we see someone who is really understanding who God is and the character of God and really moving forward to be just like him. And one day we know that, that he will remove all that we struggle with and we'll be like him forever. And so there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a holiness aspect, a Christ-likeness aspect. There's also a peace aspect that Isaiah gives. Isaiah chapter 32 says that we will have peace. It won't always be pleasant. It doesn't mean we won't have hardship. But at the end of the day, someone who knows the salvation that God offers will have peace. And there will be a peace like none other in a time to come. And Isaiah really does wonders describing that in his book. And so the results of salvation, the product of salvation is a transformed life in Christ's likeness. And it stands in, in deep contrast to the sin that is produced or is described just cross-reference, I was going to close with this, but we won't because of time. Colossians chapter 1. Really, beginning of Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we're told that he, that is Christ, is the image, right, of the invisible God. So we want to be like God, and we want to be like God's holiness? We know, follow Christ, right? And then Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And we get that whole, just... Whole sermon on discipleship culture right there. Okay, just in, in, input it. All right? And then, understand this. Oh, I'll try to find it here real fast. He says in, in verse um, 21, he says in Colossians chapter 1, he says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet... He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. In other words, this is what you were. And now as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, this is who we are. And this is not a surprise. But it is always a reminder, isn't it? That we ought to be engaged time and time again in finding out who is God and how can I become more like him. May God do that and continue to do that as we pursue him. Father in heaven, uh, tonight we're so thankful for the salvation that you offer. And, and we, we admit that we often get into the, into the nooks and crannies and we get stumped. And, and certainly, uh, Father, there are some in this room or underneath the sound of my voice, whether live streaming or whatever, that have gone through tremendous, just as Pastor mentioned this morning, gone through tremendous tragedies and evils in their life. And their nooks and crannies, by, by my standards, are so much greater. But I think, as delicately as I can put it, they are still nooks and crannies compared to the greatness and goodness and grandeur of our God and the salvation that he offers. And so, Lord, for some of us, the perspective is a little harder. The contrast is a little less vivid. And I, 
And I understand that. But all that that means is that we need to run to you more and we need to know you more. And so help us tonight at whatever stage of life that we're in to understand that the the chasm, the, the, the gulf between who you are and who we are is infinite and it is dark. We need to know and search you out and understand you, trust in you, and praise you tonight for the wonderful salvation that you give. In Jesus' name, amen.